From the Mount Sinai Health System in New York, this is Road to Resilience, a podcast about facing adversity. I'm John Earl. This is part two of our end-of-year episode. It features an interview with Dr. Brendan Carr. He's the chair of emergency medicine at Mount Sinai, which means he oversees emergency rooms at our eight hospitals. Dr. Carr was the very first person I interviewed after the pandemic struck in March. And the word I would use to describe that interview is sobering. And this one is too. That's because Dr. Carr does not mince words about the weaknesses that COVID-19 has revealed in our healthcare system or the challenges that remain. But there is hope. There's the vaccine. And there's the incredible resilience that's been revealed all over. So here's Dr. Brennan Carr. Hope you enjoy it. This is the year unlike any other year. So we uh, we decided that bringing back our first COVID guest uh-huh. uh, to talk about what the year has been like for you was a fitting way to kind of wrap this year up. That's nice. Another reason we want you back is because, to use Nikki's words, yeah, you scared the shit out of us in a very calming way when we spoke in March. <laughs> I see. So really, this is all about like, you want to know if you can sleep tonight or not? <laughs> Listen, here's the the reality is that in, in, a, in a different life, we could have met and you would know that I'm actually a, like a totally lighthearted person. I like to have fun. And I'm confident that is not the guy that you met nine months ago. I mean, when we talked, you were literally starting the job. I think you were a few weeks in, not even a month. I started February 1. We diagnosed our first case of COVID in New York City, April 1. March 1. Sorry, March 1 and April 1, we opened the field hospital. Like, that's how rapidly it ramped up. And I got to tell you, you know, the more I think back to those times before you um, play me, you know, a clip of where my head was then, when I think back to that, I, I think now, I mean, I think a lot about the uncertainty. Um, I think about how scared we were because we didn't know the, we didn't know the disease at all. And we always know, you know, even when we don't know, we sort of know. And this, we just, we didn't know what we were dealing with or how to deal with it. Um, But I also think a lot, a lot, a lot about the fact that I had, and I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast, I had absolutely no relationship with the people that I was asking to trust me. And that is terrible. A lot of my management style, a lot of my leadership style is based on the fact that I will very happily roll up my sleeves right next to you to, to focus on a problem. And I had none of that sweat equity. I had no credibility with these people. You adorn their trust. Oof. Yeah, I guess. But can you, under those circumstances, can the guy in the suit at the command center making decisions earn the trust of the people, you know, in the PPE racing into the fire? Not really. Anyway, yeah, I mean, thinking back for me, that was a really, really hard part that I'm not sure I had insight into when I was just trying to problem solve, because I very clearly remember just being in problem solving mode. If I remember correctly, um, when we spoke, there were about 450 inpatients, give or take. And I know that number quadrupled in the course of just a couple of weeks. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there were thousands. Yeah. And people weren't going home. You know, do you remember we used to, we played music when they went home, right? We celebrated it. We played Here Comes the Sun or, you know, I mean... Because that does, you know, and if it were a common occurrence, we wouldn't have been celebrating it each and every time. Um, it remains hard in a, in a lot of ways, but at least we sort of, we really do. The, the amount that we understand about this disease is just so different. We're going to come back to that in a little while. I want, do want to start at the beginning with this clip. I feel the weight of the importance of getting this right for New York City and getting this right 
for all the people that trust me enough to put me in this chair while they are on the front lines taking care of people who are sick and scared. It feels extremely important to me not to disappoint them. I uh, I do every day really still feel that weight and think about the importance of that, except it is a little bit easier. It's a little bit easier because I have personal relationships with people now. It's a little bit easier because I believe that um, missteps, mistakes would be seen in the context of someone trying really hard to do the right thing rather than, you know, someone that you have no relationship with making the wrong decision. I know another stressor for you was, uh, I think your family was, you either couldn't see your family or they were still, there was some distance there. That remains a, a stressor, although it really is secondary compared to the, you know, the, the wit. I, I, you know, I guess I would say it is the normal stressor of people who work hard and travel now. That is different than, again, thinking about where we were in those moments. It was about the fact that we were all afraid. We were afraid that we were going to die, right? I, did, I, did I talk about it on the podcast that we, you know, the number of people that needed people to notarize their wills and their power of attorney for someone to take care of their kids? No, you didn't mention that. Oh, God, right? Like, I mean, that those are the things that we were figuring out. Hey, could we get someone on the to come in on the overnight shift? You know, who's a notary? Because before there was uh, now that you know, I, there, there's now virtual notaries that you can use for. Maybe there were then too, but I didn't know about them. It's been the, in the before we were fully a Zoom world. You know, I used to think of a notary as somebody you had to see in real life. I want to zoom out a little bit. What's been the most surprising thing about how it's played out? The pandemic. It's a super nerdy answer. Go for it. So in, in like my heart, I'm a policy nerd, you know, and, and I wear that hat as well as the emergency physician hat. And so, you know, I have conversations with smart friends who have a hard time wrapping their head around why we are going bankrupt when we have twice the number of patients in our hospitals that we normally have. Doesn't really make sense. How could that make sense that we are putting ourselves out of business by doing twice the amount of work that we normally do? Find another industry that works like that, you know, sell twice as many um, cars or pick a thing uh, and you have better than expected profits. Meanwhile, we can't stay afloat. And so this is the piece that tortures me, is that the reason we can't stay afloat is because we don't value this type of work financially. The payment structures, the way that healthcare gets paid for, values some things and doesn't value other things. The only way that we can take this next surge on is to not shut down the normal stuff that we do. We have to keep doing the normal business of healthcare because there's no reimbursement model for uh, this type of work. We don't have the ability to sort of really understand our capacity in the healthcare system. We don't have the ability to have visibility of our supply chain. We don't have the ability to have unused capacity that is waiting for just in case. We have perfectly just in timed everything. We're always exactly at, at, at 100% full because that's how it works, you know? And so, this is the, you know, your question was, what has surprised me? What has surprised me is the lack of awareness that the way that we have designed the system, designed the finances of the, of the system, set us up to fail again 
with whatever the next thing is. And that next time doesn't need to be a pandemic, right? You see this when people are displaced by weather-related events. You see this when people are displaced by, you know, mass shooting, terror events. You know, you see this during flu season, frankly. What you're talking about is a certain type of fragility that comes as a result of the payment structure. Yeah, I guess it's it's a good word. I don't use the word fragility, but um, but it but it's but you're right. It is um, it's a balance, you know, and we have it perfectly balanced under normal use cases, you know. I mean, it's 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 all it's you know it's not there is it's not so much about finding blame. It's about thinking about the fact that we are by definition fragile, unless we decide that we're going to do something differently unless we're going to decide to, to, to design the system different. Anyway, it's a big lift and I know it's dry and God help you trying to bake it into a podcast that people listen to. Um, but it is the kind of thinking that um, will make our system more resilient. If we engage with it, when we, when our solution is let's hope there's a bailout, it's not a sustainable solution. Yeah. I know you've been thinking a lot about uh, burnout and you've, you've written about burnout and, and you've talked about burnout um, since the beginning of the pandemic. My first question for you is, have you felt burned out? <laughs> we don't ask that question, John. Um, yes, I have. I have felt, um, I have felt myself many times be short in circumstances where it's not okay to be short, short with people, um, short with patients uh, and, and short with my family. Uh, I, I, you know, I have not ended up, I mean, there, but for the grace of God, right. Do I end up not able to function through it? Um, and I have been really, really lucky in that I can, uh, find time to recharge, you know, um, and specifically that just means time with my family. You know, it's so easy these days to be grateful for what you have, uh, even though we don't go outside and do things like we used to, you know, we, uh, we have downtime, we have, I, I get demolished and monopoly by a, <laughs> by a terrifying nine-year-old. Um, you know, those things are really, really important and I have had them and I'm grateful for them, but yeah, of course there are times where it just feels overwhelming. If there's one thing, if there's one thing that's really important to do right now for burnout for, for frontline workers, um, what's, what's the most important thing? You know, I mean, that's it's the one thing that's hardest, which is I, I mean, I, I really think it's to unplug and to find um, to to find we all recharge differently, mm-hmm. you know, but but none of us recharge by another 24 hours with a thick mask on um, sweating underneath the gown, worrying about whether or not we're getting sick. Um, and yet you can imagine if you're wired as someone who knows how to do this and feels drawn to do this and we're short and PS, you know, there's money to be made and it's been a long several months and the holidays are coming, you know, that's the trap. The trap is that um, if you just pick up an extra couple 24 hour shifts, um, it can, it can, it can make your finances a little bit better. You know, it seems like uh, a path forward, but you know, just you end up in this spiral and that, I mean, I think people just, it is the, it is the ability to be supported by someone. We were taught by a, a guy who is on our faculty, who's also an army reservist about the military's battle buddy system. 
and it was implemented by another one of our, another couple of our faculty members. We just paired people up and asked them to check on each other. It's such a simple intervention. And yet talking about what it's like to watch someone die alone with someone else who lives that life is easier and different than it is uh, to try to talk about it for someone who's not in that universe. You know, even if you have a support system, if that support system is not in healthcare, it can end up, you know, you pull punches. You don't tell the stories uh, because they're they're just too dark and who would want to talk through them? So having somebody who lives in that world and who you can tell those stories to can be cathartic. My goodness, I don't, clearly I don't know how to say it in a concise way. Um, but I do think people, we need to be, we need to recognize that they need to be allowed to go somewhere safe, mask off um, with support and not feel the weight of knowing that if they went back to work, they could probably help some more people. But that's, you know, that's near impossible when they're not there. You know, you're, when you're not there, your friends are. And if you go back there to help carry the, the weight, their load is, their load is lighter, except that, you know, it's just insidious the way it takes a toll. I wonder how you, I don't know quite how to say this, like get through to somebody who's in that giving mindset who will give until they burn out. I don't know. I mean, the people that I, the people that are in it, the people that are wired that way, I don't know how to get through. You know, maybe, I guess, you know, and this is off the cuff, but I think it is by, I think a piece of it might be by framing it as increments. You're not walking away. You're not leaving the fight. You know, you really are just, you really just are taking a little bit of time on the sidelines so that you can catch your breath, you know, and, and, and hydrate a little bit. And then you will go back in. And when you go back in, you will, you'll be more effective at helping them because you're able to run at full speed. And it's a bad analogy. Um, I, I don't have an answer and we talk about it a lot and I don't know that we're going to have an answer. We talked, I mean, I can't remember, you know, in what context it was, but we, we had a conversation with somebody about how long the adrenaline can last, you know, because it's not 10 months and it's certainly not two years. And yet here we are at around 10 months and there's still a lot of people that are, it's not all adrenaline, you know, but it is, uh, but it is still survival mode. Someone asked me how I was doing the other day and without really thinking too much about it, I said, uh, I'm just in a holding pattern. Just, you know, just getting through each day and each week. And I think a lot of people are feeling that way. Does the vaccine feel like a light at the end of the tunnel? Oh, boy, does it. But um, it's surprising to me that so many of us in healthcare are so relieved and excited uh, that there is light at the end of the tunnel and that others, uh, their doubts are are significant. Their fears around the vaccine are significant. You know, I can't believe that a good third of the people that I'm interacting with are expressing uncertainty about taking it because it really will drive. It really will drive that and the production and distribution capacity really will drive how much longer, how much longer. Can I assume that you're in the take it camp? <laughs> yeah, I'm in the take it day one, probably with someone filming it so that we can, <laughs> you know, put it on social media and tell everybody else to take it. One final clip. 
This one's called The Only Way Out. How do you stay level-headed and just keep making smart, rational decisions under the circumstances? Yeah, I mean, the only way out is through. Mm-hmm. Is, is, I guess, you know, what I keep thinking. That there's not, I don't know what the alternative is. Yeah, you know, I remember saying that. I mostly remember because uh, a friend who listened to the podcast, you know, sent me a text. It was like, oh, man, that one, that one really sunk in. That there's just, there's no side door. There's no escape hatch. We're really just going to weather this storm. I, you know, I, you know, here's one last piece that I, I, I wrestled. I, I didn't say a couple moments ago when we were talking about some of the things that have been hard about this and what we learned or didn't learn, I, uh, it's really hard to watch people make decisions that I know I have to clean up the, I have to clean up after. And my colleagues and friends have to clean up after we, uh, it didn't have to get this bad. We could have done more to prevent these numbers from being these numbers. And, and we didn't, are you talking about the politics and masking up and all that? I am. I'm talking about decisions to to not wear a mask, decisions to congregate, decisions that that feel selfish. And I guess I didn't think we were that selfish. I thought we were. A, there was a little bit more collective ownership of the problem, a little bit more community uh, than we have ended up seeing. How did we go dark again? I think it was that clip. I think I, I was introducing it as like, this is going to be, this is going to be about your mantra. This is going to be, we're going to be positive. And then I played it and I was like, oh no, that's not what it's about at all. And that's not, that's not where our heads are. And that's you know, totally, they, and that's, that's totally fine. It's so interesting because it was right. I mean, it was, you know, what, listen, I, I don't know what conversations we're having about. I wish this, I wish that there's no wishing right now. We're just sort of, we're getting through. That's what we're doing. But that was, you know, you know, it felt different. It felt different because it was, it was in our control. It was in our control. It was us. It was us standing shoulder to shoulder, the docs and nurses, the techs, the, all the people that, that make the healthcare system go around um, taking this on. And we did. We did it really, really well. We saved a lot, a lot of lives. Um, and then, you know, standing next to me, shoulder to shoulder to shoulder, was the scientific community. And boy, did they do it really well. Here we are looking at you know, several tons of therapies that exist, including multiple different vaccines, unbelievably rapidly. Um, but now it's out of our control, right? Now I need to trust other people to accept this. And I guess that is hard. You know, they don't, they don't live my reality of knowing that, that the frontline troops are really getting, are really getting tired. The idea of moral injury comes to mind. The idea of moral injury, is that what you said? Yeah. It's almost like to feel betrayed by the public or to feel betrayed by uh, people who should have known better. And that's yeah. that's a really hard one. You know, I think all the time about the, you know, the, the right to swing my fist ends where the other guy's nose begins, you know, sides. I'm sure I'm getting it wrong. It's a you know, famous quote from Supreme Court Justice. Um, and it's about public health, right? And it's about, I think the original case was actually about forced vaccination. Fascinating. I should probably Google that. Um, you know, but that is what it feels like. Make any decisions you want to make. That's fine. But like the second that means that you're putting all the staff 
in the hospital at risk physically, psychologically. I don't know, but I get it. Look, we shouldn't, I shouldn't minimize. This is, we shouldn't minimize people's fears. The fears are real and are, and, and have a strong foundation. The healthcare system has not been across the board fair to people, especially people who without resources, especially people of color and people that are otherwise marginalized. It's not resistance for resistance sake. It's resistance grounded in mistrust and we have to earn trust, you know? Maybe we are full circle, right? We talked about me entering a job, having no trust of anyone who I was about to ask to do stuff. Uh, and here we are again. The American public has lost trust in healthcare and healthcare delivery and in public health. And we need to figure out a way to win back some trust and, and get through this together. That's all for this episode. 2020 is almost done, but we have one more episode to go. It's a conversation with trauma researcher Dr. Rachel Yehuda about MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for PTSD. It's fascinating, so look for that in a couple weeks. Road to Resilience is a production of Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's produced by Katie Ullman, Nikki Cheatham, and me, John Earl. Lucia Lee is our executive producer. If you enjoyed this episode, as always, please go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, write us a nice review. We hugely appreciate it, and it helps other listeners find the show. So thank you, thank you, thank you. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and from all of us, happy holidays, and we'll see you soon.